Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton. This is Rules-Based Disorder, a show that I do two times a week here at Colin. As always, I am inviting anyone who is listening to go ahead and join the queue. I will take your questions. I like to have this, to open the space as a, as a space for discussion and not just, you know, a, a rant for me to monologue. While I wait for people to join the queue, I'm just going to briefly address a few topics. Today is June 4th, and it is the anniversary of the infamous failed color revolution in China at Tiananmen Square. And of course, there is very extremely ridiculous media reporting on this failed coup attempt that, first of all, falsely claims that there was a massacre in Tiananmen Square, which is actually not true. There were people who were killed. And they were not in Tiananmen Square. And the people who were killed were were both protesters and lots of police were brutally killed. It was a not only a failed coup attempt, but a very violent failed coup attempt. And this has been acknowledged even in mainstream media outlets. There was ex- there were extremely violent tactics used, and really this was the the foreshadowing for the coups that overthrew the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. The the Tiananmen coup attempt began in 1989 on June 4th, and it failed. But what's interesting about this is we actually, you know, we've known for many years that the U.S. government funded and supported many of the groups behind this failed coup attempt. It was one of the original classic color revolution attempts. In, in China, in Tiananmen, but the CIA cut out the National Endowment for Democracy, the NED, just boasted on Twitter openly of its role in supporting the Tiananmen coup attempt. On June 3rd, the NED's official Twitter account, at NEDemocracy, that's the National Endowment for Democracy, Again, this is a CIA cutout created by the Ronald Reagan's CIA, Ronald Reagan administration's CIA. It tweeted, quote, since 1984, NED has supported efforts to promote democratic values and institutions in China to protect fundamental rights and freedoms and demand accountability for human rights abuses. So that's the, that's the, you know, the propaganda talking point from the government. And the NED published this article on its website on June 2nd titled Tiananmen Square Massacre Anniversary. NED stands in solidarity with Chinese partners. And the article talks about how the NED has supported so-called pro-democracy forces in China aimed at trying to overthrow the Chinese government, including the, the leaders of the Tiananmen coup attempt. And of course, for anyone who knows what the NED is, you've probably heard this quote from the Washington Post in 1991 in an article that was written by David Ignatius, who is the main CIA whisperer at the Washington Post. He's basically a CIA water boy. And he published this article titled Innocence Abroad, the New World of Spyless Coups. And that article in the Washington Post, it cites one of the co-founders of the NED, Alan Weinstein, who boasted, quote, of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. So that's the co-founder of the NED admitting that this organization 
fulfills the same role as the CIA, but the difference is that the CIA did its operations covertly, whereas the NED does its operations overtly in the open. And the Washington Post article, it affectionately described the NED as, quote, the sugar daddy of overt operations. (laughs) And when they say sugar daddy of overt operations, they're, of course, saying sugar daddy of CIA overt operations. So it's been pretty incredible to see the NED boast publicly of its role in these numerous attempted color revolutions and soft coups. And in this article at the NED website, it also boasts of its role in supporting independence, that is separatist organizations in Xinjiang, in the Western province, especially the the Uyghur Muslim minority, and also in Tibet, where the CIA has been supporting secessionist movements for many decades, including violent armed separatist movements. And of course, the Dalai Lama himself, who has been a CIA asset for many decades. And in Hong Kong, the NED boasted of supporting groups that were behind the failed color revolution and protests there as well. So this, of course, in the in U.S. politics, if you say any of these facts, it is seen as very controversial. But around the world, it's actually not seen as controversial. People around the world recognize that these all represent U.S.-backed failed coup attempts. And all we have to do is look explicitly at what the NED is saying on its website. It doesn't hide the fact. But of course, the role of the media and the political class is to obfuscate all of this and act as though, you know, the U.S. has never meddled in a single election or, or never tried to overthrow a single government. Of course, that's ridiculous propaganda. And we have to understand what actually Tiananmen was. Again, it was not a one-sided massacre of, of peace-loving protests. It was a failed coup attempt, and there were many violent forces that carried out attacks on police that actually set police on fire. This is, this is all pretty well documented. And in fact, there is a really good article that was written by, that was published by Liberation News. And if you go to liberationnews.org, the article is titled Tiananmen, the Massacre That Wasn't. It was published by Brian Becker back in June 2019. And this article has a lot of very interesting quotes, including here. So the Chinese government has asserted that unarmed soldiers who had entered Tiananmen Square in the two days prior to June 4th were set on fire and lynched with their corpses hung from hanged from buses. Other soldiers were incinerated when army vehicles were torched with soldiers unable to evacuate and many others were badly beaten by violent mob attacks. In an article on June 5th, 1989, the Washington Post described how anti-government fighters had been organized into formations of 100 to 150 people. Again, this is according to the Washington Post. These armed gangs had Molotov cocktails and iron clubs, and they fought against the PLA, that, that is the Chinese army, who were still unarmed in the days prior to June 4th. What happened in China? What took the lives of government opponents 
and of soldiers on June 4th was not a massacre of peaceful students, but a, a battle between PLA soldiers and armed detachments from the so-called pro-democracy movement. And again, this is directly from the Washington Post. This is a quote from the article. On one avenue in western Beijing, demonstrators torched an entire military convoy of more than 100 trucks and armored vehicles. Aerial pictures of conflagration and columns of smoke have powerfully bolstered the Chinese government's arguments that the troops were victims, not executioners. Again, this is the Washington Post writing here. This is an exact quote from the Washington Post. Other scenes show soldiers' corpses and demonstrators stripping automatic rifles off unresisting soldiers. Again, that's the Washington Post writing in June 1989. Here is a quote from the Wall Street Journal. Again, Wall Street Journal. This is not pro-Chinese propaganda. They admitted that there were, quote, many radicalized protesters, some now armed with guns and vehicles commandeered in clashes with the military. The Wall Street Journal wrote, quote, As columns of tanks and tens of thousands of soldiers approached Tiananmen, many troops were set on by angry mobs. Dozens of soldiers were pulled from trucks, severely beaten, and left for dead. At an intersection west of the square, the body of a young soldier who had been beaten to death was stripped naked and hung from the side of a bus. Another soldier's corpse was strung at the intersection east of the square. So I could go on, but there are many different reports in mainstream media outlets acknowledging that it was not a one-sided massacre of so-called pro-democracy protesters. It was a violent coup attempt backed by the U.S. And in 2022, the NED is boasting of its role in this violent coup attempt. Of course, they're not admitting that it was violent, but all you have to do is go back and read the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal back in 1989, and you can see that it was violent. So today on this anniversary of the Tiananmen coup attempt, I think we need to be very clear about what actually happened. But with that said, I am now going to jump to questions and comments from people. So please go ahead and join the queue of callers, and I'm going to start here with Andrew. This is Andrew. Go ahead. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good, good. How about you? Um, Pretty good. Yeah, feeling good. Got uh, a lot of work to do on a Saturday, but I still wanted to ask a question to you. Um, definitely going to go read those articles that you mentioned. I think there's so much back and forth propaganda about the Tiananmen Square events. It's been painted in such a way to demonize China over the years. It's good to have, um, I don't know, they're definitely not neutral sources, but I think it's important to use uh, opposing sources in that way. If you can understand their bias and understand, um, you know, the direction in which they tend to paint narratives, then you can also use that to your favor, even if they're, even if they tend to not be so honest. Um, But my question actually is about the uh, the elections in Colombia and then also sort of tangentially about uh, Nicaragua. So in Colombia, you have this election um, where it seems like uh, Petro is going to win. Uh, he seems to be um, 
you know, clearly preferable to any of the Uribe or Ivan Duque wing of the politics there. But then I've also seen that he's been kind of making some comments to distance himself from the left movements in Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba, I guess, as well. I'm not sure. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit generally about, um, you know, what motivates people to do something like that. Is that also the case with, um, with, uh, Pedro Castillo in, in Peru? Is he kind of also trying to say, yeah, we're, we're going to be socialists, but not like those, um, bad socialists over there in Venezuela. And then I wondered if you could just tell people about the movement to reform, uh, Sandinismo or Sandinista, uh, Sandinista, in Nicaragua and and if you could talk about what are in the 90s what what were some of the differences and events that led some of these figures that were in the first iteration of the Sandinista government to leave and criticize and then start to collaborate with the NED more recently yeah great questions first of all I there's one thing I disagree with your comments and unfortunately I don't think we can be super optimistic about the Colombia election Despite all of his many limitations, Gustavo Petro is definitely the preferred candidate. I'll talk about that in a second. But the latest polls show that he actually might lose. So it depends on what poll you look at. There are different polls, and some of them show him a little ahead. But there was a main one of the main polling firms just published uh, a study that found that Rodolfo Hernandez is slightly over 50%. Uh, Rodolfo Fernandez is the far right candidate and then it has Petro at 44%. So I unfortunately I'm not so sure that that Petro will win and the guy who's running against him is a far right 100 millionaire real estate mogul who made a comment 3 years ago in an interview where he said that he was a follower of Hitler. He said, I'm a follower of a great German thinker named Adolf Hitler. And then he later, not immediately, but three years later, when he was running for president last year, he 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 recanted that statement he had made in 2018 and said, well, I actually was not I did not mean to, to reference Hitler. That was a slip of the tongue, he said. But I mean, he waited three years to correct that. And also this guy, I mean, he he's a very far right candidate, but he has been running as a so-called anti-corruption candidate. And his party, this is again, Rodolfo Hernandez. This is not Gustavo Petro, who is the left wing candidate. Um, so uh, Hernandez, the right wing candidate, he he created a political party that's called the League of Anti-Corruption Governors. So he's framing his whole shtick around anti-corruption, which is quite ironic because he has an estimated wealth of $100 million in a country in which the minimum wage is $250 per month, per month. So this guy, and by the way, over 40% of the population in Colombia lives in poverty. So this guy is, I mean, a total oligarch. And furthermore, he claims to be anti-corruption, but he's under investigation for corruption. And of course, he's involved in the real estate industry, which in Colombia in particular is extremely dirty. It's very linked to corruption. It's linked to drug trafficking because a lot of these drug cartels, they launder their money through real estate. It's one of the easiest ways to, to launder money. So this guy is, you know, he has tried to portray himself. 
I, I actually have to say it's a smart strategy. He's tried to portray himself as supposedly anti-corruption and as an alternative to the Uribista movement that has dominated Colombian politics for 20 years, named after the former president, Alvaro Uribe. And he has successfully kind of marketed himself in this way as like a populist candidate. But the reality is that he is even more right wing and is also linked to corruption. And by the way, he did an interview in 2019 in which he thanked Alvaro Uribe. He affectionately referred to Uribe as Dr. Uribe. And he said, I am in debt to Uribe. He helped me. I want to thank him. And he also said, he said, I also think that he loves me. That's what Hernandez said of Uribe. He said, I think that Uribe loves me. So the idea that he's an anti-Oribista candidate is just ridiculous, cynical marketing. And it's very similar to the whole shtick that Bolsonaro did in Brazil. Hernandez is basically the Colombian Bolsonaro. And unfortunately, it looks like he might win. But regardless, getting back to your question about Petro, I mean, look, I'm, I've been very critical of Petro in, in, because I think he's been oppor opportunistic in some of these issues. He's thrown... Venezuela and Nicaragua under the bus, constantly attacking them. But we also have to understand that he's operating within the context of Colombia, which is one of the most right-wing countries in Latin America. It has really never had a left-wing government. And also in Colombia, I mean, if you're on the left, you're at a very real danger of being murdered. Every single year in Colombia, there are hundreds of activists who are killed Last year, there were more than 90 massacres. So I have been critical of some of the comments that Petro has made, you know, attacking Venezuela. But it's also in the context of a country where if you say anything positive about Venezuela, I mean, you're putting your life at risk. So it's not to excuse it, but it's to understand those comments within the context of Colombian politics. And also, look, Petro, he was a, a, a guerrilla. He was an armed revolutionary in a socialist armed group called M19. And that was when he was young, of course. He was a young revolutionary. He later put down his arms and he, he became more moderate and he entered formal politics and he became the mayor of Bogota. And he's not running as a socialist. He's running as a progressive, as a social democrat. But again, in the context of Colombia, that is actually very welcome. I mean, he's... Realistically speaking, he's the only possibility for the left ever coming close to state power in Colombia. And even then, I unfortunately don't think that he has a, I mean, I think he has a chance, but I don't think that it's likely that he's going to win. I think that according to the polls, it's going to be very close and he probably will lose. So it's, it's to show that even that even at the end of the day, when these candidates throw Venezuela and Nicaragua under the bus, they still often can't win despite that. So now your other question about the so-called movement for the renovation of Sandinismo. This is a group that emerged out of the right wing of the Sandinista front in the 1990s. The Sandinistas lost power in 1990. Of course, people probably know that in the 1980s, the U.S. government, the CIA, back to this brutally violent terrorist war, arming the Contras, these death squads who massacred civilians and burnt down schools and hospitals. And after after years of this terrorist war and after a U.S. blockade of, the, of Nicaragua, which led to an economic crisis, massive inflation, a, a lack of goods, 
the kind of issues we've seen in Venezuela under the U.S. blockade. After years of that, the people were tired. And the NED, in one of its first operations after being formed in 1984, was funding the right-wing opposition and the Contras in Nicaragua. And the NED helped create a unified right-wing candidate named Violeta Barrios de Chamorro, who is one of, from one of the most oligarch families that the Chamorro family has had seven presidents in the history of Nicaragua. They're the oligarchic dynasty that dominated for many years before the Somoza dynasty. And she won the election after the U.S. created her political party and the CIA ran her campaign. And the CIA also did did like media work on behalf of her campaign. So she won this rigged election, uh, rigged against the Sandinistas. And the Sandinistas decided, you know, this is a moment of counter-revolution around the world in 1990. They decided not to to fight. They decided to put down their arms and to allow the the right wing to take power. I should mention, though, that this is actually by a previous election in the 1980s in which the Sandinistas freely and fairly won that election. So anyway, so the right wing comes to power. And then in the 1990s, the Sandinista front enters the opposition. And there were a lot of figures in the Sandinista government who were from, you know, like wealthy upper middle class backgrounds and when the, the party entered the opposition, these figures, they moved to the U.S., they got jobs at big NGOs, they went to Harvard University, several of them. These are like former ministers and government officials. They were, they represented the kind of, because the Sandinista Front, after the, the victory of the revolution in 1979, it did have an attempt to try to build what you could call a broad-based kind of national democratic front, which includes elements of the, the national bourgeoisie. It's not just, you know, working class elements. They try to to create a broad base to, to govern the country. A lot of those people, when they left, when they lost power, they weren't interested in being in opposition. They only were in, interested in being in power. And the Sandinistas lost power. So they went and did other things. And in the 1990s, there was a split within the Sandinista Front, and there was a party congress in which there was a faction that that split out of the Sandinistas in 1994 and 1995, and they had a few fundamental debates, a few fundamental differences. One, they did not want the Sandinista Front to be a socialist party. They wanted to drop all references to socialism from its platform. Two, they wanted to to renounce all uses of violence, including any use of violence by other forces around the world and violence by peasants who were resisting violent takeover of their lands by corporations in the 1990s because the Sandinistas had redistributed a lot of land and a lot of the peasants, were they had their land stolen from them by corporations and some of them were, were actually fighting against the corporations and these armed gangs. So the Sandinistas supported that supporting them fighting and some elements of who became the MRS party, the movement for the renovation of Sandinismo wanted to renounce all violence. They wanted to become a European style social democratic party. They also wanted to renounce all references to anti-imperialism and they called for having quote favorable relations with the United States. So they wanted to sell out to the U S and become allies of U S imperialism. 
those were the main distinctions, uh, the uh, political arguments. So there were two factions, the faction that that wanted to continue with socialism and anti-imperialism and did not renounce violence. Although they, they, at this point, they were not an armed party. They were a, a party that was committed to it in bourgeois elections, but they did not renounce working class people using violence. So they, they were still committed to socialism and anti-imperialism. That was the faction led by Daniel Ortega. And also an important figure in that faction was Carlos Fonseca Terán, who is the son of the founder of the Sandinista Front, Carlos Fonseca Amador. So they represented that faction. And then the more right-wing faction was led by a few different people, but the two most popular names are Sergio Ramirez Mercado, Sergio Ramirez, who's a famous writer from Nicaragua, who has close links to the U.S. government and has been a U.S. embassy informant since the 1970s. And another major figure is Dora Marietes. So they created the, the movement for the renovation of Sandinismo, and Basically, all of the rich people who had supported the Sandinistas in the 1980s, they left the Sandinista front and they formed the MRS party. And immediately, they began to collaborate with the U.S. government and the right wing. And in the years since then, they have moved further and further and further to the right to such a point that they actually formed an electoral alliance with a right wing multimillionaire banker named Eduardo Montealegre. And they had electoral alliances between this right-wing banker and his party, the PLI, the Independent Liberal Party, which is a completely right-wing neoliberal party, they formed an electoral alliance against the Sandinista Front, and they still failed because the MRS party has always been a tiny fringe party. Their only support was in the NGO sector, in academia, and in the media. And, by the way, there were factions of the Chamorro family who were the more liberal factions especially the people who had disagreements with with Violeta. And they were the ones, especially this guy, Carlos Fernando Chamorro. He runs a lot of media outlets funded by the U.S. government in Nicaragua. He runs Confidencial, which is a U.S. government-funded propaganda organ in Nicaragua, although it's basically now mostly now based in Costa Rica. So he had been a Sandinista in the 1980s, he was one of the few Chamorros who did join the Sandinistas. But when the Sandinistas lost power, he became part of the MRS, a major MRS pe- for figure, because he wanted to be a leader, of course. So anyway, they moved further and further to the right. And then in 2018, the MRS party played a key role in the violent coup attempt. They were working with these right-wing elements in the U.S. Again, this was a very violent coup attempt in Nicaragua. And yes, there were protesters who were armed who were killed, and then there were also lots of Sandinistas who were murdered and tortured and set on fire and police who were killed, including there was this horrific incident and there's video incident and there's video of this of a Nicaraguan police officer named Gabriel Ruiz Vado. Gabriel de Jesus, de Jesus Luis, uh, Gabriel de Jesus uh, Ruiz Vado. And there is a park that was built named after him because he was a police officer who was, and, and the police in, in Nicaragua, the, the Sandinistas remade the police and they brought poor and working people from working class barrios to, to create a police force that is actually community police. And not like in the U.S. where it's all just like these meathead gangs of like thugs. They actually are working class people from poor barrios. So these 
these violent fascists in the coup attempt, they kidnapped this this police officer, Gabriel Ruiz Valo, and they killed him. And then they dragged his body from the back of their truck and drove around Managua. And then they lit his they lit, they lit his body on fire and filmed it to scare people. So these are the fascist tactics that were used, backed by the U.S., by the Trump administration, and by the MRS party. And by the way, the MRS party, which claims to be center left and social democratic, they sent some of their leaders to Washington who met with Ted Cruz and other U.S. government officials. This is this is during the Trump administration. And after the coup attempt, the MRS party became so unpopular that they rebranded in 2020. They dropped all references to Sandinismo and they renamed themselves Unamos, which is Let's Unite. And they also call themselves the Democratic Union. So they no longer have any pretense of fidelity to Sandinismo. So that is the history of the MRS party. It emerged as the right-wing faction of the petit, petit bourgeois and upper-middle-class factions within Sandinismo. They continued to move further and further to the right, collaborating with the U.S. government. They backed the violent coup attempt in Nicaragua in 2018, and then they dropped all pretense of being loyal to Sandinismo and are now a centrist political party. And Dora Maria Tellez, who was a leader of the MRS, she said that now Unamos, she referred to it as a big tent party, and she says it includes social Democrats, liberals, and even some conservatives, is what she said. So that that is the so-called opposition to Sandinismo. It has never been left-wing. But unfortunately, there are still people at Jacobin Magazine and some other, you know, social democratic magazines in the U.S. who still pretend like there is a left-wing opposition to the Sandinista front. There is not. Yeah, I, I don't want to take too much more time, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more um there are some friends of mine who who have played, I would say, mostly a good role in my political development um, and just sort of evolution of thought. Um, but they they would argue that uh, Ortega and the Sandinistas have become, you know, heavily patriarchal and that they they are not an authentically feminist movement and that they think um, Deyes would be like a a better alternative for women. But then I've also seen some of your um, comments and I've read up on some, you know, UN statistics or whatever else I could find showing that, you know, Nicaragua is actually committed to, for instance, like trying to give as many property deeds when they're, when they're distributing, you know, housing to families to try to give it to women um, as much as they can. And then if you could talk more like um, how does it, how does it look like, do they, they have to have a co-chair that includes at least one woman of, of government positions. Yeah. Or, or if you could just expand more on that or what are the actual arguments being made? Are they being made particularly by Tellez to kind of level these accusations at the Sandinista government? And, and why do you think they kind of get traction in the U S yeah, well, Dora Maria Tellez, we have to understand that, I mean, at the, during the triumph of the revolution, she was like 21 years old. So, I mean, it's, it's funny that, you know, there's so many former revolutionaries in the U.S. who became like neoconservatives, like Horowitz is an example. He's like a fascist. But what's funny is that people assume that because Tellez was 21 years old when she participated in the revolution, that, that she has maintained her politics since then. I mean, people's politics change, especially in 40 years, right? Tellez has been a neoliberal for decades now. 
and she has been deeply involved in these neoliberal NGO networks. She has also been a U.S. embassy informant since at least 2008, according to documents we have from WikiLeaks, from U.S. State Department cables. So the MRS party was never a left-wing party. It, it always was a right-wing party. And if you look at their economic program, they ran this candidate who was named Herti Lewites. And Herti Lewites was a, he was the former mayor of Managua. And he was a millionaire and was a complete neoliberal. And he was the MRS candidate for president, a total neoliberal who was deeply linked to corruption and big companies in Managua. So like the idea that that Teyes and the MRS party have ever been left wing is completely absurd. Now, it is true that they support abortion and they were affiliated with the NGO feminist movement, not the actual working class grassroots feminist movement, but the NGO feminist movement. And that's because they understood that you could take all this NGO money from, you know, the NED, USAID, the Open Society Foundations, Rockefeller, Ford. These are all CIA cutouts. And they they did they did use the issue of abortion to try to get support internationally. But what's funny is if you read the WikiLeaks cables in Nicaragua, there's a U.S. embassy cable where the U.S. government talks about why it should support the MRS. And this is, by the way, under the Bush administration saying that we should support the MRS because it's one of the most effective opposition parties. And what's funny is even they acknowledge in this this embassy cable, they say that the MRS party has lost support because they support abortion. And they say the U.S. embassy admits that the majority, the vast majority of Nicaraguans oppose abortion. And I should say that, look, this is a reality we have to acknowledge. The majority of people in Nicaragua, including Sandinistas, do not support abortion. I know people who are hardcore revolutionaries who have tattoos of Che Guevara and Fidel, and they don't support abortion. It's cultural and religious. And people in the U.S., I, of course, support abortion. And in the U.S. in particular, I'm not going to impose that on other countries in the global south, but it's different in the U.S. In the U.S., it's a right-wing wedge issue, and these conservatives are trying to take away the right of women to choose to have bodily autonomy. It's a different issue in the U.S. It's not the same in Latin America. In Latin America, a lot of people who support abortion are these wealthy, Western-educated liberals who have dual passports, and they don't represent the vast majority of working-class people. And they certainly don't represent the majority of women. I know a lot of women in Nicaragua who are very, not just progressive, they are revolutionary socialists and they don't support abortion because they are Christian. They believe, they believe that Jesus was a communist, but they also believe that, that abortion is, is against their beliefs and that it could be even considered killing a baby. So that is a major cultural and religious distinction. And it doesn't mean that they're right wing at all. And that's why, honestly, look, the idea that the Sandinista government is, is patriarchal is so insanely absurd. I'm not accusing you of this, but like I've heard people say that it is the exact opposite. What's funny is inside Nicaragua, that, that's the exact opposite of the talking point. Inside Nicaragua, the right wing opposition constantly says that that the vice president, Rosario Murillo, is a dictator because they say that she controls everything. What's funny is that basically the Nicaraguan government is basically a is a co co-presidency. 
And you mentioned that the Sandinista Front, when it came back in, to, after it came back to power in 2007, it passed legislation that says that half of all government positions have to be filled by women, which meant that Nicaragua went to having extremely low representation of women in government to now it is in the top five most gender equal countries, according at least according to women's representation in government. The only other countries that have higher women representation in government are the Scandinavian countries. So this is a massive victory for women. And the the cabinet has to have at least half women. And right now it's over 50% women. And many positions in the government have co-chairs in Sandinista youth. They have co-chairs of a man and a woman. So what's funny is if you listen to the opposition inside Nicaragua, they accuse they say Rosario Murillo, the vice president, of being in charge of everything. And and that's, of course, propaganda. But it is true that Rosario Murillo has a lot of power and she is vi very widely respected for being a very competent, very gifted administrator. She runs a lot of, you know, operations of the government that are a lot of people would not want to do it. They're boring, you know, managerial operations. You know, she runs a tight ship. And is a very competent stateswoman. And Ortega runs other, you know, Ortega runs foreign policy and oversees, you know, military and police and oversees economic programs for poverty alleviation and a lot of these other things. But there, it's kind of a co-presidency. And Rosario Murillo is not just a vice president. She has a lot of influence. And she is one of the most powerful women in Latin America and has prioritized feminism. She is a feminist. And what's interesting is in the past, before the Sandinistas came back to power, she had supported abortion. But she's a very smart politician. And she recognizes that still today, according to polls, the majority of Nicaraguans do not support abortion. So even though she personally supports abortion, she recognized that the Sandinista front did not take a position openly in support of abortion. However, the Sandinista Front also has not taken a, a position openly against abortion. And the the strict abortion law in Nicaragua was passed under the neoliberal president Bolaños in 2006 before the Sandinistas came back to power. And the Sandinista Front was divided in the National Assembly on the abortion vote. There were Sandinistas from the National Assembly who voted against the abortion law and who voted for the abortion law. It was not, the, the party did not maintain a line on abortion because it's a complex issue and a lot of their base is against abortion. So what's so crazy to me is that, that these bourgeois liberal feminists in the US who never talk about poor women, who never talk about these women in the US who don't have healthcare, whose children don't have education, they don't talk about those issues, which are objectively feminist issues. They only talk about abortion, which, again, in the context of the U.S., I absolutely support the right of women to be able to have safe abortion. I think I think abortion should be free and provided by the government. But abortion is not the only feminist issue. And we see so many bourgeois feminists in the U.S. ignore all of the incredible strides that the Sandinistas have made for women. And again, this is a government in which one of the most powerful women in all of Latin America, the vice president, Rosario Murillo, has prioritized at every single level helping women, 
representation of women. And as you said, the government has had a policy of land redistribution and land deeds. And the policy is that it gives those land deeds to the mother of the household and the land deed is written in her name. And there was another example of this recently. The femicide rate in Nicaragua is very low in, compared to its neighbors in the region. Mexico, of course, has a very high femicide rate, femicide rates, but also El Salvador and Honduras have much higher femicide rates. Nicaragua's femicide rate is very low. And there was a horrible case of femicide two years ago. And the government, Rosario Murillo and Daniel Ortega, wanted to make it clear that they were very they were taking they were taking this very seriously because they do take it very seriously. So they proposed the idea of life sentences in prison for people who commit femicide. And then that became a massive like political scandal because that was popular. Polls show that a majority of people supported that. But the right wing opposition said this is the government's authoritarian tendencies. So which one is it? Does the government not care about femicide and violence against women? Or is the government authoritarian? This, this frustrates me so much because it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. No matter what the government does, it's attacked. So it's attacked for supposedly not being, you know, feminist enough, but then it's also attacked for being authoritarian. I mean, it really shows that it's not about the government's policies. No matter what it does, it's going to be attacked. So, I mean, I do want to get to other issues because there are other people in the queue here. But I mean, it's so funny to me hearing people attack the government as being like supposedly anti-feminist because it, I mean, the Nicaraguan government is objectively one of the most feminist governments in the world. And on one issue, yes, the issue of abortion, it is not legal on paper. But since the Sandinistas came back to power in 2007, not a single woman has been convicted of the anti-abortion law has been punished for the anti-abortion law. It is well known in Nicaragua that it is possible to get an underground abortion. Now, of course, I personally, as a white person from the U.S., from a very different culture, I personally think that abortion should be legal and should be provided in safe conditions by the state. But for a variety of historical and cultural and religious reasons in Nicaragua, it is not a popular position. But the Sandinista Front the Sandinista government has never punished a woman for getting an abortion. All right. Um, so there are three questions here. So I'm going to take these three and then I'm going to wrap up because uh, that was a little longer than I, than I had hoped, but that was, it was, a, those were good questions and I, I was glad I was able to address those issues. So I'm going to go to, uh, Cele, uh, nuestra compañera ahí en, Allá en Argentina. Saludos. ¿Cómo estás, Ele? <laughs> Hi, I was going to hang up on the other parts. You, you struck here. Uh, and there's a thing uh, about the feminism in Latin America. Latin America is huge and it's, it's like comparing, I don't know, the Scandinavian countries with Italy. It's, there are so many different levels. One thing that struck me when I went to, well, I don't know, the path of strike stroke, um, when I went to Nicaragua was that I saw a lot of, uh, of, of signs on the streets encouraging women to go to work. Uh, what I felt is that is that, yes, it was uh, like the government was encouraging it, 
um, it seems like that. But the the people are really, really. It's a very it's still a very society that is very machista. It's like going to Salta here, which is a very conservative province, a very small. It's, it happens. It's different. The I mean the the evolution of of what the women's struggle can achieve in a place or other. I mean, they are not there. They, when you speak with men, you, you can notice there's still a very machista society, which is normal. It's much more, it's so much smaller than, than other countries that usually go, go a little faster in that. that uh, so, yes, I mean, it seems like what you say, like they are, that is encouraged and the fact that they make quotas in the government for women is the only way to, to really get there fast. And it seems like they are more feminist than the society itself. So on the other subject of uh, the only thing I have to say is that in abortion really, uh, there's one thing there. Um, it is a feminist thing because it it, it, the thing is to not not to see is to see it's a class issue. That's the, that's the thing. It's not about if okay you can believe that you that is murder or you cannot believe we can believe it's not. But the law the here it was um, uh, the the law here was a, a sexual education uh, to not to decide. Um, anti-concepts, uh, contraceptives in order not to abort and legal abortion not to die. So the the thing about legal abortion, at least in in, in South America, or in my, I think in most Latin America, the problem with it is that women die. So it's not about you or what you believe. It's about uh, having to do it in an, um, I, I mean, as you said, it's known that it's done. It's been done for ages, but the conditions end up that poor women die, and the others don't because they can afford a better place. So uh, mainly, I think it has to do with more than ideology. I think about um, health. I think about uh, uh, health policy, and it took a long time for us. To, to to get like more people in the society to realize that because yes it's, so these are Christian countries or Catholic countries the Pope is Argentinian I mean uh, is a culture where abortion is seen through religion and I think the the thing about feminism and sometimes it's it's hard to to make people see that in in the case of abortion is I, I had a child when I was twenty I mean I could have and I could have had an abortion it's not what you decide or is what people eventually are dying as women dying that's what is I think it's important to to distinguish but I that doesn't mean that the society is ready to understand that. Uh, it's very. It's, it's, it's an education. It's an educational issue, and in in that regard, I I I understand you 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 make this separation, but I wanted to say that because it's important. And actually, our law is is uh, was con um, made with women from the 
um, Catholics Foundation for Women, so women can choose, and they put a law that is the law of the thousand days. It's called that. It's in order for women that go to uh, to the hospital having doubts about abortion and um, spoke to with a psychologist, and they see that they are not. I mean, there are women that are have have to abort because they don't have the money to support the child, and that's horrible. Because they want the child. I mean, if you don't want the child, I understand. But if not, and uh, so it's the the government comp- takes a compromise to support the woman and the child until the child is about three years old. I think it's uh, a thousand a thousand days on top of any other um, any other money or anything that you are receiving for the government. So I wanted to say that. So I leave the questions for another day so they can call, the, the others can talk. Yeah, thank thank you, Sele. I I strongly agree with you. I mean, like I said, we have to understand these issues within their historical context and the material conditions of the society. And you know, Argentina finally in 2020 it did pass a really good law that that as you know, as I said earlier, is the policy that I support, which is abortion that is provided for free and it's by medical professionals by the government. And I think you know, Cuba has had that policy since the revolution. But we should keep in mind that outside of Argentina, Uruguay, Cuba, and Mexico City, mm-hmm. abortion across Latin America is very, it's almost everywhere else. It's illegal or it is only legal under very f- few circumstances, like, like the threat yeah. to a woman's life. So, I mean, what, what frustrates me is how people single out Nicaragua and Venezuela, where, you no, know, no. where, where the, 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 the United Socialist Party of Venezuela and the Sandinista Front understand that even though many of their politicians and their leaders may support the right of women to get abortion, they understand that they have to deal with the society the way it is. And I mean, I think it will change over time. We've seen in Mexico that it has been slowly changing and in Mexico City, it's legal and Mexico has a federalized system. So it depends on the state, but more and more it's becoming legal across Mexico. So I think it's going to be a gradual change. The irony is that it's going to be a gradual change happening in Latin America, while in the U.S. it's becoming more and more difficult in many parts of the U.S. It's absurd. Yes, yes, absolutely. The one the, I recommend you listen, I love, I love uh, Pepe Mujica. I yeah, <laughs> in Uruguay. Yes, and he, he's, he's not a, a person that particularly supports abortion. But he was uh, the one that supported the discussion and the law. And what he has to say, if you've had some signs the time, his opinion on abortion is amazing. So it's just that. Bye. Yeah, thank you, Sele. And bye, bye. Thank you for having me. Hasta luego. Um, yeah, and I think what well, I'm going to go jump to Leandro here. But before that, I'll just say briefly, I also think that we have to keep in mind that in Cuba, which was the first country in Latin America to legalize abortion, it had the people of Cuba had a socialist revolution that overthrew bourgeois democracy. And they have elections, of course, but it, Cuba has a Marxist-Leninist model in which the Communist Party of Cuba runs the affairs of the state, and then there are elections for local office. But, you know, that model which is much more democratic, by the way, than than so-called democracy in the U.S., which is where, as uh, Lenin famously said, it's only 
democracy for the slave owners as it was in ancient Greece, where billionaire oligarchs control everything and you just vote for which candidate, uh, which of the two indistinguishable warmongering candidates who were funded by big corporations. I mean, but that said, you know, Cuba's model is constantly demonized and attacked as supposedly authoritarian. So Nicaragua and Venezuela have national elections for president and they can they contest those elections and yet they're also smeared as authoritarian and then they're attacked for not legalizing abortion because they don't want to alienate people who might support them but are against abortion which is many people so which is which do the people want i mean it, this is what's so frustrating is that you know venezuela and nicaragua are attacked supposedly for being authoritarian but if they truly were actually authoritarian, then they would just legalize abortion. I mean, because that's if you're, if you're not actually concerned about winning democratic elections, you don't need to be concerned about things like that. You can just do it. So it, it's once again, it's an example of how these countries are so maligned and demonized. And it's, it's an, an issue where you're, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. They can never do anything right, according to the Western propaganda, right? So uh, last last two comments here, or excuse me, last two questions here. I'll I'll take from Leandro and then Sam. So here's a uh, Leandro Leandro Peralta. Go ahead. Hello, Ben. How you doing? Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Good, good. Uh, yeah. So I I, I I want you to comment uh, uh, briefly about uh, these. Uh, uh, trends to uh, propose regional currencies or international reserve currencies. Uh, I saw your video about Iran recently. Uh, also, uh, obviously, in Brazil, Lula suggested the same thing. And considering the history of other nations that tried to uh, to do this before, like Libya and Gaddafi, and also the the situation in Europe and how the euro has has worked for for Europe. Uh, I wanted to for you to comment on how this uh, relates to the multipolar world, world and what are the pros and cons of having regional uh, currencies. Great question. This is something that I find so interesting. I think it's so so important. It's one of the most important issues in the world today, and that's de-dollarization, the, the attempt to create create new currencies, and not only new currencies. You know, Gaddafi, for instance, was trying to create a gold-backed Pan-African currency. So that's an example of this kind of regional currency. But also we're seeing now with Iran's proposal, this is a currency based on an, an international organization, which is pretty interesting because that that model is, you know, it's something similar, you could say, maybe to the euro. But that model hasn't been attempted in Asia with the largest economies in the world with China and, and India and Russia and Pakistan. Well, specifically China being one of the largest. China is the largest country by population. India is the second largest country by population. The idea of creating a pan-Asian currency is, I mean, mind-blowing. Obviously, Gaddafi's attempt to create a pan-African currency was also was a great idea. And it was one of the reasons behind the... 2011 NATO war. We have documents published by WikiLeaks showing that the right-wing French president Sarkozy, he cited this currency as one of the reasons to overthrow Gaddafi. 
And we know in the case of Gaddafi's currency that the attempt was to make it gold-based. So that, that was an interesting attempt. This attempt with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, I think, is at an even larger level. Not, not to downplay in any way the importance of what Gaddafi was trying, but we're talking about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which represents 30% of global GDP. That is monumental if they can accomplish that. So a few, a few thoughts on this. One, I think there are things that are worth, there are reasons that it's, that it's worth comparing this idea to the euro. And there are reasons why it's not a good comparison. One, let, let's look at the proposal that Lula da Silva made from Brazil. For people who don't know, Lula da Silva is the former president of Brazil. He served two terms between 2003 and 2011. He was the most popular president in Brazil's history when he left office in 2011. He had an 80% approval rating, which is mind-blowing. And he's from the left-wing Workers' Party. And Lula was also one of the co-founders of the BRIC system. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which does not have its own currency. It's still largely based on the use of the dollar. But they created their own bank, the New Development Bank, they call it. And that bank model is... The model for that capital was each country provides 20% of the capital for the bank. So, so when Lula talks about these ideas, he has a history of implementing them. And Lula gave a speech in which he said that if he wins the October presidential elections in Brazil, and the polls show that if it's free and fair, he's going to win the election, that he plans on creating a currency in Latin America for trade. Now, this is the important distinction this is what makes it different from the, with the euro. The euro is the sovereign currency of the European Union. And every country that is part of the European Union, I believe every country that's part of the European Union uses, uses the euro. I, excluding, of course, Britain, which had been part of the EU, but had the pound. But of course, Britain left the EU. So I believe unless unless I'm wrong and someone wants to correct me, I believe all of the remaining members of the EU use the euro. And only that that's a different, that's a different model. Whereas before, I believe it was in 1999, I might be wrong on that specific date, but it was after the end of the first Cold War and the overthrow of the Soviet Union. That's when the euro was adopted as the currency. Before that, they had the European Community, which was an economic zone, but it was, but countries still had their own sovereign currencies. That is the model that Lula da Silva is proposing. So the idea is not that every country in Latin America adopts a unified currency, which means that their own central banks can't print that, that money. So they don't have sovereign currencies. His idea is, is in a speech that he gave at least, and this was a speech that he gave at a rally. So, I mean, we'll see if he irons out the idea further in the future. But the idea is that it would be backed by reserves in a central bank in South America, which would probably be the Brazilian central bank. And then the capital would be also provided by different members of this alliance. And it would be the amount that they provided would be proportionate based on what their the size of their economy in trade in the region. So for, given the comments he said, it would probably, first of all, given the comments Lula said, it's clear that he has a model already ironed out. 
because he wasn't just suggesting this. He had ideas of how it could be organized. And secondly, it's clear. I think he's pretty clearly implying that Brazil would be the Brazilian central bank would be the one that would have the reserves that would hold the reserves backing this this currency. But like I said, it would be a currency that would be used to settle trade settlements to to do trade with other countries in the region. So Brazil is not going to drop its currency. Colombia, Venezuela. I mean, Colombia is probably not going to be part of it. Venezuela. Uh, Bolivia, they're not going to drop their currencies. So that's the difference. Now, with the model proposed by Iran with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, we don't know exactly what the model proposed is because all the only reason we know about this is because this week, Iran's foreign minister for economic affairs, he he revealed that Iran, which became a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in September of last year, proposed creating a currency among the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We don't know the exact details of how that would be ironed out. But from what I know from speaking to people who follow these issues closely, especially Michael Hudson, who is an economic advisor to the Chinese government, he has said that there have been discussions going on between China and Russia and Iran for creating a currency for trade. Excuse me, let me take that back. Um, creating a basket of currencies for trade. So the idea would be to do trade with these countries and to do part of the trade with the Iranian currency, part of the trade with the Chinese yuan, and and part of it with the Russian ruble. So I'm not sure what the model will be for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but again, we should keep in mind, even the fact that this is being proposed by Iran is monumental because China is the largest country on earth with the second largest economy, according to GDP, according to purchasing power parity, it's the largest economy. India is the second largest country on earth. It has one of the largest economies. Russia has a massive country and a massive economy. And Pakistan is a huge country with a huge economy. And then also the other members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. And they're not as big, but they still are pretty important countries, especially Kazakhstan is a pretty big country. So I think this is, this is the real deal. And I should, the last thing I'll say here is that AMLO, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he has also proposed creating a common currency for Latin America. Now he said that the model would He's been a little inconsistent in his speeches. AMLO has said in some of his speeches that the model would be the Union, uh, excuse me, the European Union, Union Europea. And in other speeches, he said la Comunidad Europea. So when he says la Comunidad Europea, it's not clear if he means the capital E, capital C European community, which was before the European Union, or if he means lowercase e or lowercase c, like a, just the idea of the European community. So anyway, long story short is this is the real deal. It's being discussed in Asia and in Latin America, but we don't know exactly what the model will be yet for, for this, these new currencies. Excellent then. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think my confusion uh, came from, from that because I, once I thought it was AMLA that proposed it and then I thought, I know it's Lula, but yeah, that makes sense. Both of them uh, made suggestions towards that. But yeah, it's, I just want to understand that because, 
one thing is to to be united and and form strength from that, uh, but also centralization can be a weakness uh, strategically. So I, it's it's good to understand the difference between what the euro is and what these other nations want to implement. Thanks a lot for your for your reply. Of Very course, thank you for the great question. Yeah, and and Lula himself has acknowledged that in the comments he made that he said countries could still keep their sovereign currency. And I think that's that's the correct decision because, you know, this is a long conversation about MMT, right? About the ability of countries to be able to deal with any fiscal issues they have with being able to create money. And of course, the U.S. government does that to fund all of its wars and its, and its uh, you know, bailouts for Wall Street. So, you know, of course, those are bad reasons of bad cases of MMT, but there are good reasons for MMT. And if, if you if the issue is in Europe, the euro is printed by the European Central Bank, which is largely controlled by Germany. So that means that countries with smaller economies in the EU and that tend to be concentrated in the southern part of the EU have been devastated economically by the euro. Of course, Greece is a good example of this. Greece has constantly been suffering from this odious debt that it can't pay off. And if that if that debt were denominated in a currency that the Greek government could print, it could more easily pay off that debt. And of course, it would lead to inflation. So they would have to balance that with other policies to, you know, combat poverty and food insecurity and stuff. But it would be possible. But now, you know, Greece, Spain, Italy, these countries can't deal with these fiscal problems that they have because they can't print their currency. So I think Lula clearly referenced that to to assuage fears in Latin America of that kind of problem. And especially also because Brazil is the largest economy in Latin America. So if Brazil were to be the, in charge of the currency, that would give a lot of economic power to Brazil. And And Lula is reassuring people that Brazil isn't planning to like, to implement something similar to that. And I, again, I want to stress that according to the model proposed by Lula, it would be a, a currency for, for trade. Because right now, the majority of trade in Latin America, according to uh, statistics from the Federal Reserve of the U.S., which obviously has, a, it has, a, it's in its, it's, 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 it's in its interest to exaggerate. But according to the Federal Reserve, they said that as of 2019, more than 90% of trade in Latin America is still done in the U.S. dollar. And I think that's probably true. So if countries could create another currency for trade, what they would do is they would exchange their own currency for that currency and then trade with another country. If they, For instance, if they want to buy imports or if they're exporting to another country, that country would pay them in that new currency, and then they could use that new currency to buy imports. And that way they could have a better balance of payments and they wouldn't necessarily weaken their own domestic currency by constantly trying to exchange their domestic currency for dollars, which leads to a devaluation of their local currency and an evaluation appreciation of the US dollar, which is always is what helps strengthen the US and it uses that to fund its wars everywhere and bailouts for Wall Street. So great question. Go, go ahead, Leandro. No, just wanted to say thanks. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you next time. Thank you. And uh, last question here, and then I'll wrap up. And this is Sam. Sam Kasim. Go ahead. 
Hey, Ben. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I've been following you since, uh, what, 2015 from the real news to, uh, uh, yeah, your time on Status Coup, um, Moderate Rebels, and now Multipolarista. So I always love your work. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great work you do. Uh, I'm just going to switch it from South America to the Middle East because I, you know, having family in Syria, that's why I always loved your reporting. Um, I was just curious what you what you thought the, I don't know if you've seen like the newest escalations with Turkey trying to take, like, what is it? They're doing a 30, they want like a 30 kilometer buffer zone or something. And uh, I, I was just more curious as to why it is that you know, as a, as the left, we can oppose occupation, but it seems like no one seems to mind when the U.S. is occupying like a third of Syria because they fell into like, I know you don't like to say the Kurdish groups because that's like painting, you know, as a monolith, but would Kurdish separatists be a uh, proper term then? Well, Kurdish and led groups. It's definitely Kurdish, led, say Kurdish yeah. led for sure. Yeah. Um, so what do you think that would cause? Uh, what, what do you think that that's going to build up seeing how, um, with Turkey using their NATO boats uh, to keep like Finland and uh, Sweden um, from getting in, uh, they would seize on this opportunity. I just want to know what your because you always did great work on like from what you you would cover from what was happening all the way up in Afrin from the PKK to the YPG. So uh, I always would love to know what your view is now. Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of those situations where it's like both sides of the issue are awful. But Turkey is definitely the main aggressor here. I mean, Turkey basically has colonized a huge chunk of northern Syria and continues to expand. And now it's the idea is it's going to be expanding eastward more. And, of course, the other side that it's fighting against are these Kurdish-led groups, the so-called Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a rebranding of the YPG, which is the People's Protection Units, which is the armed wing of the the PYD, which is this this Kurdish-led Social Democratic Party. And it is a legal party in Syria, but their armed wing used the the war, they took advantage of the war in Syria to 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 take up all this to take all this land in Syria and refused to allow the central government to retake it. And they're occupying this territory and then they just welcomed in the US military. And as you said, the US military, through these proxies, has been illegally occupying roughly one third of Syrian territory. And that territory happens to be where the majority of oil and wheat is. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Turkey is trying to play this game here because Turkey is a NATO member. It's trying to say, look, we will allow, I mean, they can't really block it, but we will, we will not cause a fuss and we will, we will help Finland and Sweden join NATO if you ha allow us to help gobble up more of Syria. And the irony here is that it's like two different powers, both of which are violating Syria's sovereignty. And mm -hmm. they're not really on the same page. I mean, Turkey plays a complicated role because Turkey is a member of NATO, but Turkey has its own interests. You know, Erdogan has, has his own imperial ambitions. He's been talking about like He's been using like Ottoman rhetoric. Empire. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, you mentioned Afrin, Afrin and not just Afrin, these other areas that were that are part of Syria, um, like uh, they have been ethnically cleansed, not, not only of the Kurdish population, but also there were even uh, Arabs and other ethnic groups, Assyrians 
who have been ethnically cleansed. Also, the Assyrians have been attacked by some of these Kurdish forces as well. But anyway, the point is that these Turkish-backed forces have ethnically cleansed the minorities from the region. Syria, as you know, is a very diverse country, and mm -hmm. they've repopulated them mostly with Sunni Arabs who were refugees who, who fled to Turkey, and then Turkey is repopulating and changing the demographics of these areas in northern Turkey, excuse me, northern Syria. And in these schools, you've probably seen there's videos, insane oh, videos. Erdogan, yeah, and uh, teach them in Turkish, they the Syrian the children, yeah. And the, the Syrian children are like, they have to, like at recess, like playground time, they have to stand outside and they have to stand and salute the Turkish flag while they play the Turkish na national anthem. So, I mean, this is this is Turkish colonization of northern Syria. And what Turkey's doing is is actually it's very cynical, but it's smart is Turkey is saying, look, we are fighting these t so-called terrorists. And of course, when they they say that they're using that as an excuse to gobble up more territory. But what's interesting is that Turkey is is trying to win support from the Syrian government, which, of course, doesn't want Turkey to take its territory. But the Syrian government has had a lot of fights with these with the SDF forces, because even though they've had negotiations on multiple times, the SDF refuses to give up the possibility of having independence in this region and refuses basically to put down its arms because the, the proposal made by the Damascus, by the central Syrian government, is they said, look, the SDF as a, as a combat unit, the SDF can, they can become part of the SAA, the Syrian Arab Army. They can hmm. become like their own battalion, but they cannot have a separate command structure that is independent of the Syrian state because the main concern of Damascus is they don't want the SDF to operate and the, the PYD to operate as a state within a state with its own independent foreign policy right. because that would be a, a step toward secession. And they obviously don't want part of their region to be broken off. So Especially when it's oil-based, it, it's like the whole region that is, has the oil and the wheat fields that the Syrian government can't get access to itself. Exactly. So Erdogan is doing this thing where he's saying, look, hey, Syria, I'm helping fight these groups. But at the same time, he, Syria is yeah, not he's also backing. Yeah, he's also exactly. backing HDS. So it's not, yeah. it's not a win situation either way in that regard. Well, that's, what, that's the strategy he's trying to do. And Turkey is also playing this weird game with Russia where, you know, Turkey shot down a Russian plane over Syria and then mm -hmm. Turkey bought the, the Russian S-400 missile defense system. And, and then Turkey has been arming Ukraine, but Turkey's also, it sent drones to Ukraine that were attacking the Donbass before Russia militarily intervened. But Turkey also is now sponsoring peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. So basically Erdogan thinks he's like this very smart geopolitical operative. And what he's trying to do is just play all of these countries against each other and just take more Syrian land. I didn't even mention Iraq because in Iraq, yeah. there's also mm -hmm. some of these Kurdish groups that are affiliated with the PKK. And there are divisions within the Iraqi state as well, because in, in Iraq, when the U.S. government invaded and recreated the government, they created an autonomous region, an autonomous Kurdish region. Yeah. But the central government in Iraq is is pretty um is pretty wary because they understand that there are these separatists who want to create a separate state. 
And by the way, especially in Iraq, the Kurdish groups, especially the KDP, is very close to to uh, Israel yeah. and has been yes. working a lot with Israel. So so Erdogan is doing the same thing with Iraq and being like, hey, look, I'm going to help you fight these so-called terrorists. But of course, Iraq is not dumb either. They understand what, what Turkey's goal is, and that's to gobble up this territory and colonize this territory. So it's just more of the same. And, and Turkey has constantly been violating the Astana agreements, the agreements that were that were brokered by Syria, Iran, Russia, and Turkey. And those agreements said they, they established several different provisions for for um, the areas that were controlled by HTS and are still largely controlled by HTS, which is working with the, the Turkish military. Largely you can literally run find Italy. videos of them literally staying side by side, praying together. You can see HTS in Turkish armored vehicles. I mean... Well, according to PBS, their HTS is a new "quote unquote" moderate rebel. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I was—I yeah. can't believe they put that guy in a suit. But I mean, my my bigger question—and I didn't mean to cut you off and continue that train of thought—but I was just trying to say, like, well, now, I mean, after—and I remember. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. Um, but back then, in 2015, you had in the Afrin region the PKK, and then you had the space of Jurabolus, and then to the right of Jurabolus, you had the rebranded YPG to the SDF. And, you know, when the, uh, when Turkey kept saying we're going to come towards Afrin, the, the Syrian governments and the Russians said, you got to let them come. You got to let the Syrian government come in. That's the only thing that's going to stop Turkey from coming with, because, you know, they're not going to fight with, with if the Syrian government's in there and they have the Russian backing, but they were under the illusion that, well, you know, uh, we're, we're our, our guys are with the U S on just right across over there. So we'll be good. And then, you know, it took Turkey like no time to take over. I mean, having not learned from that, do you think they're just going to, you know, what do, what do you think the, would happen next with this 30-kilometer buffer region? Or is it just going to happen and that's that? I mean, where does it go from there? I, I have to say that I think the the Kurdish-led forces, especially the SDF leadership, is extremely opportunistic. And mm-hmm. obviously, they decided that they were going to ally with U.S. imperialism. However... They are very opportunistic, but they're not idiots. And they recognize that they have two options. One option is permanently having U.S. military forces there that allow them to operate as if they controlled the region. But actually, they're just proxies of the U.S. But they think that they have strategic autonomy. Or the other option is eventually reconciling with Damascus. They're not idiots. And that's why they've had on and off for years now. They've had peace talks and negotiations with Damascus. But as you said, they have refused to they've refused to agree to Damascus's demands, which, again, are mostly that you have to dissolve your command structures and become part of the Syrian state because we don't want you to create a state within a state to eventually be independent. So what has the status quo has continued, which is that they're just going to continue operating until the U.S. leaves. But that's the that's the scenario. That's the ultimate factor. Now, I agree, Biden, the U.S. is not planning to leave anytime soon. No. I mean, Biden's administration literally she I forgot the woman's name. She bragged we are holding the the wheat and the hydrocarbon of Syria. Exactly right. And and this is this neoconservative operative who is the head of the Pentagon Middle East desk. So um, but at the same time, what's funny is that when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, the U.S. military reassured people, 
we're not leaving Syria and Iraq because the U.S. still has troops in Iraq as well, illegally, after the yeah. Iraqi parliament voted unanimously to expel U.S. troops. So yep. they said, even though we're leaving Afghanistan, we're staying in Syria, but they can't stay forever. I mean, to be fair, uh, f- I mean, not to be fair is the wrong word. To be honest, for the U.S. empire, for the U.S. military, it's not it's not very expensive. Unlike in yeah. Afghanistan, exactly. they were spending trillions of dollars. In Syria, they have like, I don't remember the exact number. I think it's a few hundred. It's not very many troops. So that's not well, very expensive. They, they, they kept fluctuating it. I remember one article said that uh, because when Trump had wanting to wanted to pull some troops out of Syria, they would uh, you know, move the troops from Syria to Iraq. And then they'd say, look, we only got like a couple hundred and then they move them back like left and right. But it, yeah, I think it's anywhere from 500 to 900, I think was the approximation. Exactly. So eventually they're going to be, they're going to be forced to leave. And you might remember that when the, when the U S committed this act of war and terrorism and killed Qasem Soleimani and also killed Abu Mahdi Iraqi commander. Yeah. Yeah, and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis was the head of the the um, military, the um, PMU. PMFs or PMUs, which yeah. are these Iraqi government-backed militias that had fought ISIS. When Abu al-Mahdi al-Muhandis and Qasem Soleimani were killed, Iran gave a speech, and the supreme leader said that the U.S. that its days in the region are numbered, and then. Um, Said Hassan Nasrallah, the head of, of uh, the Secretary General of Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, he gave a speech and he, he did this famous symbol of like a coffin. And he said that the U.S. soldiers are going to be forced to leave the region sooner rather than later. So, I mean, these resistance forces, they are going to eventually force the U.S. to leave. And then the, the SDF leadership is going to be forced on their knees to beg the Syrian government to come in to protect them from Turkey. And at that point, I think they're going to lose all of the political leverage they have. So if they were smart, they would just recognize that the U.S. can't stay forever and that they would come to some kind of settlement with the Syrian government. But I don't think that's going to happen because, honestly, I thought it would have happened years ago, especially when you mentioned that right when when I mean, Turkey has invaded Syria three times now and yeah. three different operations since the war began in Syria but there was especially- the Afrin, Jarabalus, and then the one where Trump moved the soldiers yep. um, from one region in the north to just the northeast. Yeah, and, and that it seemed like with that move that Trump, who actually did want to withdraw the troops from Syria, it seems that, at least at first, it seems that he made it some kind of deal with Turkey, and and he allowed, he gave Turkey the green light to go in, but he didn't want the Syrian government to take that territory and then the SDF leadership were so opportunistic that they just didn't want to sign an agreement with Damascus and they allowed that to happen. Yep. And and then, of course, Trump was talked into staying there because he realized that they could just take the oil. But the, what's the thing about the oil, though, is that the, the, the oil is not even necessarily for the U.S. because they know it's just to weaken the Syrian government. It's to weaken the Syrian government because it's one of the main sources of state revenue. And also... The U.S. has been signing these agreements with private companies, U.S. companies who are helping the SDF forces exploit the oil in the region. So the SDF well, forces. Well, the voice of America, they say that's not true anymore. 
Well, yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, I'm being, I'm being sarcastic on that. But here, here's the only pushback I would give, though, is because I think the difference is with Afghanistan, we all agreed uh, this is an occupation that needs to end. We all agreed that Iraq was an illegal occupation. But what amazes me is how much of the left has bought into well, if we, if we leave, then we're, we're abandoning the Kurds. And I'm like, but you understand, as you've said, the Kurds are not a monolith, A. Um, B, like I, I have family in Damascus. I have family, uh, you know, rebuilding from homes. And, you know, there's not many Kurdish in that region, but the, the friends of the Kurdish people, the, the people, my family who has friends who are Kurdish will tell you that there's no, like, one, you know, all Kurds want a unified one country. Many understand, like, you have to work within the government, you have to work within a system. But the problem is that now you have the left who just blindly, you know, blindly say, oh, well, if you do this, you abandon the Kurds. And then that's where I would say it's 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 more of an uphill battle, because in neither Afghanistan or Iraq did you have a good chunk of the left saying this is why we have to stay there. I agree with you. However, there's I have one disagreement. Actually, if you go back and listen to Christopher Hitchens and like the the smart people who were trying to, I mean, he was an, he was an idiot in some ways, but he was a very smart guy. If you listen to the, like the, the so-called left-wing case for the Iraq war, Christopher Hitchens was making this argument. In fact, in the debate he had with George Galloway, you can see Christopher Hitchens says, well, what about the Kurds? The Kurds support the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And he's like, the Kurds, they're enlightened Democrats and they're even socialists and all this stuff. So this argument actually is not that new. And even going back to Ojalan, now Ojalan, ironically, he had, he's the head of the PKK. He, Abdullah Ojalan, he had ironically been supported by Syria for several years and he lived in Damascus in the 1990s. And there was this kind of undeclared war after Turkey backed up, Turkey supported the brotherhood this, of the 80s. Yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood, um, violent coup attempt that was based in homes actually in the 1980s mm-hmm. that failed. And then after that, there was this kind of this like protracted undeclared war between Turkey and Syria and Syria was supporting the PKK and Ojalan lived in Damascus. And then eventually they normalized relations and and it was one of the agreements in order to normalize relations between Turkey and Syria. Ojalan was forced to leave Damascus and then he basically just allied with the U.S. after that point. And what's ironic is that the CIA actually helped Turkish intelligence, MIT, imprison Ojalan, and he lives in like this, he's, he's not lives, he's like imprisoned in this crazy, like weird dungeon in like this Turkish island. But didn't Ojalan give a, spe- uh, a eulogy, if I'm correct? Or was it him that gave a eulogy to Hafez al Assad's uh, funeral? Or, it, uh, it was the PKK's newspaper. PKK. Yeah. Yeah. The PKK's newspaper uh, praised Hafez al Assad in this, in this eulogy when he died in their newspaper which is the Kurdish word for dialectic. I don't know what, it, I don't remember what it is, but anyway, so but what happened is that after in the 1990s, you know, after the overthrow of the Soviet Union, and all of this, they just allied with the U S and, and reportedly now there's, there's arguments about whether or not this is an authentic document, but mm-hmm. allegedly when Bill Clinton was president, Ojalan wrote a letter from the Turkish prison asking for the U S to, Saying, saying that the PKK is no longer, you know, uh, a socialist organization that they now has this idea of democratic confederalism based on, you know, uh, Murray Bookchin and all of this. And he asked if the U.S. could 
could stop recognizing it as a terrorist organization and and support the PKK and its fight for democracy or whatever. And you can find that letter online. Now, again, whether or not it's real is is up for debate. But what is not, what is not up for debate is that the PKK and its allied groups since the 1990s have moved closer and closer to the U.S. And they basically have been willing to drop a lot of their leftist politics. And they're they say they don't want a, a state, but that's obviously not true if you look at what they're doing in Syria. They claim mm-hmm. they want like democratic confederalism, but they're trying to make a state and they're trying yeah. to make a state with the US military protecting them. Well, anyway, I'm sure I'm taking up too much of your time. I just hope you'll do a video soon again. I forgot who it was you brought on uh, last time you had this Ali conversation. Ornick. Yeah, it was Ali, really yes, good. Great, great, great. That was really informative. But uh, look, just like I said, I hope this happens sooner than later. I mean, mainly because the longer HTS is allowed to stay in Idlib, the more problematic. And the more problematic it is that you're going to have an entire generation growing up in, I believe it's the Drablus region we were talking about, where these kids are literally taught in turkish they praise the turkey flag they praise her i'm like the sooner this big move out the better but i just don't know when that's going to happen or or you know how many more years this has to go on but yeah i, don't know. I agree with you yeah i definitely agree so thanks for that question good discussion well, great talking to you ben and uh can't wait to chat with you next time yeah thanks for joining okay. great well that was a that was a fun episode we got to cover a lot of territory and uh I will, I always do two of these a week. So I will be back next week. Keep an eye out. I will tweet, I will tweet about it the day of a few hours before. So thanks to everyone for listening. As always, you can find this show at Spotify and iTunes and Google podcasts. There's an RSS feed. So if you missed an earlier part of it, definitely check that out and I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.